so I don't know how long ago it was. It's been at least a couple years ago, if not more. I decided that I was going to burn a, a pile of brush that had built up in the backyard at my house. Now, like not, not in the backyard, but I have woods behind my house. And so I thought, like, I'm in the woods. I can do this. And I was a dummy. I decided, I was like, I'm not going to mess around with this. I'm going to get this thing lit real quick. And so I just doused it in gasoline. And I had a, like a, a shirt that I rolled up and I doused it a little bit in gasoline and lit it. Had like this cool little torch. And just the moment I throw it, it does that thing. Not quite to that level, but it got a little out of hand. Crystal kept looking at me. She goes, do I need to get the hose? And I was like, I think we're fine. Like 30 seconds later, I was like, go get the hose. And like it ran, it started running up the electrical pole in my yard. And I was like, oh my land, this is, yeah. So bad decisions, guys. Like now, now human nature should, it should tell us when what we're about to do is probably not the best idea or decision. Agreed? Yeah. But as this video compilation shows, that is precisely our problem in life. When we rely on our own human nature, our, our own intuition to guide us to the best decisions, we often miss the mark, don't we? And more times than not, we miss the mark. What seems wise to us, what seems sensible to us, is many times just an accident waiting to happen. But let's be really honest, bad decisions are often not our problem. What becomes tricky in life is when we have to judge between good and better. Or even better and best. In an attempt to help us or to guide us as consumers, many companies have taken the liberty of giving us a good, better, best rating on their products. Whether it's tires, whether it's oil changes, whether it's HVAC systems, or a million things in between, the strategy of good, better, and best pricing is nothing new. As, as a Harvard Business Review article, and I just wanted to say that because it kind of makes me sound smart, like I sit and read Harvard Business articles all the time. I don't. But as a Harvard Business article said, nearly 100 years ago, or uh, Alfred Sloan introduced a price ladder to differentiate Chevrolets and Buicks from Oldsmobiles and Cadillacs, creating a car for every purse and purpose, and powering General Motors to overtake Ford. Now, this same Harvard Business Review article gives us a more modern example of the pricing strategy. You guys will know this and will recognize this. For decades, the auto insurance industry operated on a simple assumption. Consumers are highly price sensitive, and most will buy the least expensive plan that they can find. But in the early 2000s, Allstate conducted some research that caused it to revisit that assumption. Price does matter for sure, but there's more to the story. Many drivers worry about being hit with premium hikes if they're in an accident, which just communicates to me that those are the people who are constantly in accidents. And drivers with clean records want to be rewarded for their good driving. And so with those insights, in 2005, Allstate launched Your Choice Auto. The, pro, uh, the program relied on what has become their calling card and slowly but surely became an industry standard. We know it today as accident forgiveness, don't we? The basic premise is that drivers who went five years without an accident or any sort of claim would have no premium increase after their first accident. Along with that incentive, they offered a, a value plan that was priced 5% below their standard plan and didn't include accident forgiveness. 
They had a newly created gold plan that was five to seven percent costlier than the standard plan, and it included immediate accident, forgive, accident forgiveness. No five-year wait. You get immediate accident forgiveness. And the highest was the platinum plan that was 15% above standard, which included forgiveness for multiple crashes and a safe driving bonus under which credits were issued for each accident-free six months. How many of you in here would be on the platinum plan? Anybody? Anybody in here like crash test dummy? Duh, you're in here. I know you are. You just don't want to admit it. Consumers were enthusiastic. By, by 2008, remember it started in 2005, by 2008, Allstate had sold 3.9 million your choice auto policies and was selling 100,000 policies every single month. Not year, not six months, every single month, 100,000 new policies. A decade later, the pricing plan remains very attractive. In fact, in 2017, 10% of all customers chose the value plan while 23% of customers chose the gold or the platinum plan. Floyd Yeager, one of Allstate's senior vice presidents, recalls this. There were a lot of skeptical people in the company, but we demonstrated that car insurance doesn't have to be about the lowest price game. But herein lies the entire problem with this model of good, better, and best pricing. And specifically in Allstate's case, your choice auto pricing. You still have to choose, don't you? You have to choose where you're going to lock yourself into. And as I just demonstrated in the very opening video clip, leaving us in control of the, our own choice is often a dangerous proposition. Now, the reason I've given you an overview of this consumer strategy is that it has an uncanny parallel with where we're going to be going this morning, but also over the next several weeks as we study the book of Hebrews. We're spending most of our time leading up to Easter walking through the book of Hebrews. And although this morning's sermon, and although Hebrews really has nothing to do with tires and oil changes and HVAC systems, there's something that lies at the heart of this important letter. And I am really convinced, and especially this morning, you're going to see it as we read, that there is something in, in Hebrews that is all about good, better, and best. In fact, as the authors of the Life Application Bible Commentary put it, faced with the choice of something good or something obviously bad, only a foolish or misguided person would choose bad. See, that's not the problem with us. Probably every one of us in here, when we really think about the choice, would never choose something that's intentionally bad for us. Good should win every time, is what they say. At the next level, however, choices become more difficult. Deciding between good and better. Again, in this case, the logical choice would seem to be better. But the choice is not always as clear-cut as in the former situation. The differences between the two options may seem insignificant, and staying with the familiar good may feel comfortable and convenient. That's such an important line, guys. It's such an important line for life and such an important line for what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to read that again. Staying with the familiar good may feel comfortable and convenient. And so faced with keeping the good or moving up to better, many people stick with what they have because after all, it's not all that bad. But there are other choices and they don't get any easier as we move up the ladder. 
The next choice is deciding between better and best. Again, the choice should be obvious, right? The best, that's what we want. Best is better every single time, but many miss what is best and they instead settle for what is better or simply good enough. For them, it is better to stay with what they know. Guys, Hebrews carries this profound message, not only in chapter 1, but all the way through it. Best is better than good. Every single time, best is better than good. Judaism probably doesn't have a hold on you this morning, but many other gods and many other beliefs or half-truths in your life clamor for your attention and they push for your allegiance every single moment of every single day of your life. And regardless of their claims and their promises, know that only Jesus, only Jesus is the truth. Only Jesus brings life. Jesus is not just good. Jesus is not just better, but he is the best. He is not just an option. He is the thing. The way. And so don't settle for anything less than the best. This is what Hebrews is all about, guys. And this succinct and powerful description that I just gave you is what is so important and what is so foundational in this letter. And this letter is screaming to us. I'm going to plead with you over the next several weeks as we read this book, please, please don't settle for anything less than Jesus and the best that he has given for you. This letter is screaming to us, and it's it's screamed to its first listeners almost two millennia ago, and I want to dive in this morning and get at the heart of what is the best. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're at this morning. There's a whole lot in Hebrews chapter 1. It's 14 verses long. I just want to focus on the first four verses because it sets up perfectly the entire letter, and it sets up perfectly our sermon and where we're going for this morning. And what it really does, and what is so very important, and the most important thing it does is that it lifts and it holds Jesus Hi. as the center of all things. And it starts this way. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. I'll read that again. Through Jesus Christ, the Son, He created the universe. He created everything. And it says the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. And when He had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. And what Hebrews really does, we'll find out over the next several weeks, is that the writer really is trying to make a case that, that Jesus is greater than anything. Angels, Moses, law, sacrifice. He, t- he talks about that so much through the book of Hebrews. Now, understanding a little bit about Hebrews is probably really important at this point. Hebrews is written to a a group of people who are struggling in the faith. 
And I would believe that with the number of people we have in the room this morning, there's probably at least one or two people who are like, man, I'm just kind of, I'm wavering. I'm in a really bad time right now. And I don't know what to hold on to in my faith. It's written to people who are struggling in faith, and most likely it was written to people who were Jewish Christians who had a really strong compulsion at this time to abandon Christ and to slip into some very comfortable practices and rituals of the Jewish faith. They were experiencing intense persecution at this time. They were isolated in their loneliness. And they were living in the constant tension of giving up what was superior for a shadow of that greatness. And many Jews had truly embraced Jesus for who he was, believing that he was the best, believing that he was the ultimate expression of God's best for humanity. And yet what always happens in life is the familiar good came in. The familiar good of Judaism continued to woo them back. Some had already returned to their old ways, while others attempted to combine the old ways and the new ways, forming some sort of a hybrid mix of Judaism and Christianity. And in the process, what they really missed was God's best. And it's into this very dire moment in the life of the early church that the author of Hebrews pens these opening words that we just read in these first four verses. And guys, man, I mean, I read these words so many times this week, and I was just like, I cannot get sick of this. They are just soaring words about who Jesus is. Make it crystal clear why Jesus is who he is and why he is greater than anything in this world. There is no question if you read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, of who the person is that sits at the center of all things, Jesus Christ. And what the early Christians were wrestling with was something the church would contend with constantly throughout its history. It's something that we contend with even today. And the question is this, who is Jesus? In the Gospels, Jesus puts this question to his closest followers. Who do people say that I am? And in one account in Matthew chapter 16, the story goes like this. It's very familiar to us. Going on to Matthew chapter 16. Not there? She's saying it's not there. So guess what? I'm just going to pull my phone up here. Matthew chapter 16. This is technology at its finest here. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, I mean, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Some people are saying you're Elijah. Some people are saying you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn it from any human being. And there's something important, and there are actually really two things that are important that are at the center of this moment in Matthew chapter 16. It sets the tone for where we're going to be going this morning. The first thing is this. In verse 17, which is probably the most overlooked piece of this entire section, it points out something very, very important. Jesus says, my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. I mean, there, there's a sense in, in which I, I think we often forget, guys, that but by the grace of God in revealing Jesus to us, we would be hopelessly lost. 
I mean, think about that. There is nothing that you can do to grope, grasp, get your way to God and to understand Jesus if God was not gracious enough to say, I'm going to reveal my son to you. We would be utterly and totally lost. That sits at the heart of the opening to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. The second thing that I really notice as I read Matthew 16 there is this all-important question really has an even more important question that lies at the core of it which I believe the author of Hebrews is responding to and attempting to answer in chapter 1. Jesus' question, who do people say that the Son of Man is, to which there's a whole host of answers given. Oh, you're a, pro- you're a prophet. I mean, you're Elijah. I mean, you're John the Baptist that's been like brought back again. But Jesus pushes even deeper, in it, and he asks the question, who do you say that I am? You see, guys, it doesn't really matter so much what what or who others think Jesus is. What matters deeply is who you think Jesus and believe Jesus to be. As I'm convinced of this, and I've said this many times in many ways up here on the stage, is seeing Jesus rightly is the most important thing in the world. In fact, theologian A.W. Tozer said this, what you think about when you think about God When you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you because it determines and it informs everything that you do. Guys, right theology lays an important foundation for a Christian life that is well lived. A neglect of theology, on the other hand, has detrimental effects on the church and individual Christian lives. Right thinking is essential for right living. The task of theology is to keep us on track in the Christian life. And I know when I say the word theology, a lot of people go, oh, that's, that's a bit, I, I don't do theology. I mean, like, that's, that's, that's you. You went to school for that, to do theology. It scares a lot of us, but theology essentially, guys, is just this. Seeing God rightly. Hebrews 1 is one of the most important theological statements made in Scripture and in the entire history of the church. And guys, if that's the case, and if you would believe that to be true as you read Hebrews 1 there, it it would really be smart of us to understand and to take theology and seeing God properly very, very seriously. If we don't see... God correctly, and we don't see Jesus correctly, it affects everything, especially a worship. And that's why I said we've, we've framed things the way we have this morning for a very specific reason. Because I want to start in Scripture, I want to establish in Scripture why we should see Jesus the way that we, sh- we, we see Him, and we should see Him properly because it will affect our worship every single time. If you walk into life, or you walk in on a Sunday morning, and you leave, and you're like, eh, I don't know, kind of flat. You did not see Jesus rightly. You did not attempt to see Jesus rightly. Which honestly, guys, is the essential point of Hebrews chapter 1, but especially the first four verses. There is a question that almost seems to lie under the thesis that the writer is trying to establish. It's a question that I want to ask and I want to have each of you work through this morning, not only the rest of the time of the sermon, but all of the rest of, of our service this morning. I want you to kind of keep these this question. And it's really a question that comes in a couple of different forms. Why does Jesus deserve our deepest worship? Or asked another way, what would cause you 
to worship Jesus? What should cause you to worship Jesus? And there really are three things here in just these first four verses of Hebrews 1 that I think come out and come to the top. I think Jesus deserves our heartfelt worship because first and foremost, he is sufficient. And he is satisfactory. And, and I was telling, Levi and I were kind of working through this earlier in the week. I was like, help me brainstorm some things here. Make sure I'm on the right track. And I said, I've come up, uh, I didn't come up with it. It's not my genius idea. I said, I, I see some words that bubble to the surface here in Hebrews chapter one. And I said, I see that Jesus is sufficient and he's satisfactory. And he kind of chuckled a little bit. And I was like, uh, maybe I'm not on the right track here. And he goes, I don't know. He goes, I just think when I think satisfactory, like, you know, when we say, yeah, that's satisfactory. What does that really mean in our language, in our terms? Yeah, that's good enough. Th that's not what satisfactory means when it comes to Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But he is sufficient and he is satisfactory. And really what's very interesting about these first four verses as it catches Jesus in three different kinds of offices or responsibilities that he has in this world when he comes and the first one is Jesus as prophet it says here at the very beginning that in these last days he has spoken to us through his son and just just stop there for a moment by the way N notice what this one line is saying Although most translations and the translation that I read out of this morning present this introduction to the book of Hebrews in several sentences, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 in the Greek forms actually a, a single run-on sentence, a multi-clause sentence that is formed around one major and main clause and idea. God has spoken. This, my friends, is significant. God has spoken through many people. He has spoken in many ways. He has spoken at many times. But there is a sense in Hebrews 1 that this revelation was incomplete and it was deformed until it found its end in Jesus. In Jesus, God the Father has bridged the largest communication gap this world has or ever will know. Do you understand that? Again, we've talked about this. If God does not enter into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, there's silence. There's nothingness. There is a gap that exists. And believe me, as I read Scripture and as you read Scripture, I think what you should see a whole lot is that God is a communicator. This communication is, is actually rooted in the first covenant. That's what Hebrews is talking about here. The Old Testament is a story that's actually in need of a conclusion. It's in need of a Jesus conclusion. The fathers and the prophets, uh, prophets of, the, of the previous days spoke the word of God. People like Jeremiah, people like Isaiah, people like Ezekiel, all of those guys, and a and, and, and hundred and thousand more of people who spoke God's word in the first covenant. But that word, guys, what's not the full and the final and the ultimate word. God communicates primarily and best in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's best in His fullest and His final word to us is His Son, Jesus Christ. Nothing more needs to be said. I, and I've heard this, people say this. And this is why we get to the end of the Bible and you get to Revelation and it basically said, this is, this is, this is it. Don't, don't add to this. Don't take away from this. Because Jesus is that full revelation. We need nothing else. And for anybody to ever say to you, well, you know, I, I got this really great idea. 
Where'd you find that? I don't know, it just came to me. Really, did it, okay? If it's not in God's word, and it doesn't find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then it's nothing that I really want to hear. God is communicating his word, and it's effective, and his son is the ultimate means of that communication. He is God's final word. And here's what's really fascinating to me. Do you know who the ultimate recipient of God's word is? You, me. In a corporate sense, the church is the recipient of God's communication to this world. He is preeminently in the center of everything. Someone has said, God has something to say to the church. And I would add, he has something to say to this world. And that message focused preeminently and solely in the person and the work of the exalted Son, Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus lifted up here in Hebrews 1 as a prophet, he is lifted up as, as a priest. It says this line, when he, Jesus, had made purification for our sins... Guys, Jesus came to, to save his people from their sins, and he came to offer a, a satisfying, that's the word that I use for satisfactory. It's not just good enough. It's final. It's full. He offers a satisfying sacrifice on behalf of the people. And that satis sacrifice, the satisfying sacrifice is Jesus himself. He is the final and full sacrifice. He is God's final word. He is God's fullest and final sacrifice. Nothing more needs to be done after Jesus. Not only is Jesus sufficient and not only is he satisfactory, but he is also sustainer. This one is so fascinating to me. I, I love this one so much. It says here in Hebrews that through the Son, he created everything. He created the universe. It also says a little bit later that the Son radiates two things. A, the glory of God, and B, the character of God. He sustains everything. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 is a great, great pairing to Hebrews chapter 1. It says in Colossians chapter 1 starting verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see, and he made the things that we can't see. Such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything, like, listen to this. This is so big. Everything was created through Jesus, and it was not just created through Jesus, it was created for Jesus. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first. He is best in everything. For God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, God reconciled everything else to himself. Guys, the Son is the exact expression or the exact representation of the Father. The word translated representation or expression is the Greek word, and that's why they put it here, at least in this translation I read from this morning, character. 
That is a Greek word, character, which was originally used to denote an instrument used for engraving or, or the later the impression made by an instrument of that sort, similar to the impression that was made on coins back in that day. The word speaks of the features of an object or a person by which we can recognize it for what it is, what it's meant to represent. The imagery also calls to mind a representation of a, of a parent one often sees in the face of their children. Anybody ever, you, you see a kid and you're like, I, can't, I, I, I know exactly who they belong to. I, had a, I, was, I, was, I was substitute teaching on Friday at Frazee, and I had one of the kids the, in the class come up to me, and they're like, you know what, like, uh, you look exactly like Brenna. And I was like, I, like, you probably mean like Brenna looks exactly like me, and she goes, oh yeah, that's right, that's what it means. That's what they're talking about here when they talk about Jesus and the Father. When you see Jesus, you've seen the Father in all of his glory, in all of his likeness fully expressed in Jesus. To see the face of a child immediately shows the close family resemblance. Jesus, guys, doesn't just merely resemble the Father, but he displays him perfectly in all of his glory. Jesus has ultimate authority. It says here later on, something we didn't read, but it is part of chapter 1 here. In verse 6 it says, And when he brought his firstborn son into the world, God said, Let all of God's angels worship him. Verse 8 says, But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. Jesus has ultimate authority. He also has a unique title and a unique position. Everything is at Jesus' beck and call. Matthew chapter 7, it talks about the fact that it says He taught with real authority. And He amazed people constantly with that authority. It says later on in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and he gave them authority. He was constantly challenged on his authority. He had no need to prove to anyone his title and his position. It spoke for him. And that's why you come to the end of Matthew. We just read this last week. You come to the end of Matthew in Matthew chapter 28 and Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And as such, guys, he is to be highly honored and worshiped. Revelation chapter 5 gives us this vision of Jesus sitting on a throne and it says that, that, that everybody came and they fall to Jesus' feet and they say, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's a whole lot of things, guys. And he said, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea. And they sang, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Guys, he has a name that is above all names. The name that is the greatest name. It is the name Son. Jesus is God's son, and guess what? Nobody else can say that. That is unique. Hebrews 1.5 here again says, For God never said to any angel, to any person, what he said to Jesus, You are my son, and today I have become your father. 
Jesus has inherited the greatest name. It is the, same, it is the name of Son. He has sonship from the Father. Jesus is altogether unique in that. He is altogether different and, and, and because of that relationship he has with his Father. And because of that relationship, it has elevated his name. It has elevated his position. It has elevated his status. It has elevated his glory to a name that is above any other name. Philippians chapter 2, and this is really one of my favorite sections of the Bible, if not my favorite section of the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11 say this. Therefore, because, God, because Jesus is in a unique position with a unique authority and a unique title, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice that all the time? Everything about Jesus and his greatness and declaring his greatness, do you realize what it's all about? It was right there at the very end to the glory of God the Father. And here's a thing that always astounds me about Jesus' uniqueness. In the uniqueness of being called Son, He chooses to bestow the blessings and the benefits of being sons and daughters to those who believe in Him. Catch that. Jesus doesn't hoard sonship for himself. It says in so many places in Scripture that it says he bestows that upon us, that he has called us sons and daughters of the Most High God, that he has adopted us as sons and daughters to the Father, God himself. Guys, not only is Jesus sufficient and satisfactory, and not only is he a sustainer, but most importantly, and everything I want to drive towards this morning is that Jesus is supreme in everything. Verses 10 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, he also says to the Son, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and you made the heaven, heavens with your hands. Verse 13, And God never said to the, any of the angels, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. There is so much caught up in that idea of sitting at the right hand of God. In Jewish culture, in Hebrew culture, that meant very specifically that if you were sitting in a place of honor, you were sitting at someone's right hand. If you were to sit with the king and the king or the most important person were to invite you and say, sit here at my right hand side, everybody knew beyond a shadow of a doubt who the important person was in the room. At the right hand. And not only is Jesus here in Hebrews 1 lifted up as a, as a prophet and as a priest, but most importantly here at the end, he is revealed and he's lifted up as king. It says here, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. He is the king who has conquered sin and death and hell through his mighty and glorious resurrection so that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And I get this image when I think of this. It says here in Hebrews 1.3, when, 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 when Jesus had made purification for our sins, when he had satisfied the gap that existed between God the Father and us, he sat down. I just imagine Jesus, as he ascends to heaven and sits down on his throne, going, 
done. I've done it all. He is the king who has conquered all and his rule extends forever. I don't care if you go back and look at all of history and you look at guys like Genghis Khan who, who had like, like tens of millions of square miles of territory that he ruled over. Or emperors in Rome who ruled over about the same amount and you was like, oh man, those are some great, great kings. Nothing in all of history matches up to Jesus because again, what does Jesus rule over? Everything. An entire universe. No one can say that. He has a name unlike any other. He is a faithful and rightful ruler. Again, guys, this text is written to Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians who are in danger of slipping away from their faith. Jewish Christians who are falling back and fading back into traditions. Back into ritualism. Back into Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is writing a magnificent teaching to them and saying, Jesus is better. He is better. He is far superior. Don't go back. You are falling into something that is lesser. You are going back to that which, you, which held you in chains anyways. Don't settle for what is less. Go for the greatest. And it is Jesus. An old preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, suggested that when the church ceases to lift Christ to the height where all people can see him, it becomes useless and it becomes a fraud. And you see, guys, popular views of Jesus attempt to take Jesus and make him fit for modern consumption. Sadly enough, a lot of churches today have done that. They've taken Jesus and they've packaged him in such a way that it says, well, this this is really palatable for people. This is wonderfully wonderful for people. And it got me to thinking, and I, was, I looked this up earlier this uh, week. This is how nerdy I am, but I, I love my theology and I love my church history. And I came across, and I had this line that was stuck in my head, and it has to go with Hebrews 1 here, and it, and it says there, there was this moment in church history and somebody said this, there was never a time when Jesus Christ the Son was not. And it goes all the way back to a man named Athanasius, and he was actually battling a guy named Arius. And it said this little line when I read this about church history. It says, Athanasius stood fast on the undiminished deity of Jesus in an age when many people in the church wanted to jettison it in favor of a more palatable version of Christ. And then he asked the question, sound familiar? Because it's the world that we live in today. I literally just sat with someone in the other day and I heard these lines, and these make me cringe, by the way. We're talking to them, and I was talking to this person, and they were saying, um, Boy, I don't, I, I don't know how, how to get to heaven, but, but, but I believe that whether it's by being good, or whatever it is. I mean, like they, were just, they were just stumbling along trying to figure out how in the world do I get to heaven? And I thought to myself, holy cow, this is the world that we live in. This is the culture that we swim in every single day of our lives. That's why I said last week that people would be surprised. Really, Ryan, in Connorsville, Indiana, you, you're telling me people have not heard the gospel. 
that convinced me again for about the hundred billionth time, yes. We live in a world where people think they may have heard the gospel, but they have not heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that it's for the very reason because the church has not lifted Jesus up and has not put him on the throne and that we are not seeing Jesus rightly for who he is. There is no other way that we are getting to Jesus but by him and through him. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one is getting there, not being by, good, by being good, not by hoping and wishing and praying that it's going to happen, but by Jesus and Jesus alone. It is only the exalted Jesus who is fit for our worship and our attention and who can help us persevere in the Christian life and in the culture that we live. And guys, I'm not here doing a sermon this morning and talking about settling for less than your best life. That is not what I'm talking about. I get so tired of that mumbo-jumbo too. I am preaching and I am pleading that you would not settle for anything less than the life that you can find only in Jesus Christ himself. But really, as we began everything this morning, the choice is yours. And I'm going to end this morning with a line that I began this sermon with. Only Jesus is the truth, and only he brings life. Jesus is not just good or better, but he is the best. He is the way. So don't settle for anything less than that. Guys, of my hope this morning as the band comes back up here and we continue on worshiping this morning by singing and giving of our adoration and our praise and singing. I know that sometimes when we come to the end of our service, we kind of come to the end, we sing a song, and I give an invitation and say, hey, you need to know Jesus, and people go, well, I don't know, there's not much time in there for me to respond. Guess what? Today, there is plenty of time to respond for the rest of the service. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, then you are just wandering in life. You're wandering and you're wondering, what in the world is there to life? Today is your day. And my hope is that for the rest of the service that you would just see Jesus for who he is, exalted, lifted up, put on high, and that you would place your faith in Jesus today. You would give your life over to Jesus as Christ and as Lord, and you would seal that in baptism this morning. If at any point over the rest of the service, as we are singing, communion, offering, whatever it is, there is not a bad time for you to give your life to Jesus Christ, that you would do that today, and that for the rest of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, that we would worship him for the rest of this morning with every single ounce and atom in us. Would you pray with me? Lord, that is the hope and that is the prayer that not just now, not just in this moment, not just in the rest of this service, but every single day we would worship you rightly. We would see you rightly in all things. And that by doing that, Lord, our lives would be an expression and a representation of who you are. I ask this morning, Lord, if there are those who are here that are struggling in life, struggling in faith, they would be humble enough this morning to bow themselves before you and to confess, Lord, that you are best. 
You are greater than anything. I ask as well, Lord, that if there are those one, two, handful, whoever it may be, who have not ever truly placed their faith in you, Lord, they would do that this morning. This would be the place. This would be the moment in time where they come to you, not because they have everything figured out, but Lord, because you have already taken care of everything. You've already figured everything out. And they would rest their life in you. May that be our prayer. May that be our posture and our position this morning as we continue to worship you. It's in Jesus' most mighty and excellent name we pray. Amen.